welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched My Favorite Year. An aging, dissolute matinee idol is slated to appear on a live TV variety show in 1954, and a young comedy writer is tasked with the thankless job of keeping him ready and sober for the broadcast. Yeah, I had I knew nothing about this. I knew nothing about it other than maybe the tiny bit of trivia of our Oscar stuff here. Okay. As just a, a, a quirky entry in a legendary actor's portfolio. Mm-hmm. This is a delightful little movie. Oh, it's adorable. I don't have a whole lot bad to say about this movie, I don't think. Like, there are some eye-rolling moments, but it's it's very cheeky in a sort of safe way. Mm-hmm. It is very much in the vein of, you know, the Sunshine Boys or even being the Ricardos that's come out recently, which is the the opposite of the sort of golden age of Hollywood movie, which is the in the writer's room movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we'll find out, this movie specifically has some real life ties to that. But uh, this is just a super fucking fun movie that I don't think gets enough play as being one of those really fun comedies yeah it's one of those uh, little slice of a job life type of film and it's just fun and it's rife for a remake yeah maybe maybe in a modern writer's room though i mean then again 30 rock kind of did this for you know seven seasons yeah a little but it's a very different it's a very specific thing it's true it's enjoyable it's, it's a really fun film it is well, the budget for this movie was $7,900,000, and it grossed just over $20 million. It did fairly well for a movie that, from what I read, ran in a pretty limited engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, this was not a big deal movie, but it was significant enough to make an impact. Well, let's talk about our writing, because there's a writer that's not credited here. Mm. It's not credited anywhere, but who's very integral to this movie. Credited for the story and screenplay is Dennis Palumbo. This is his only ever film screenplay. His biggest ever credit at all was a story editor for Welcome Back, Cotter. And he actually left movies to become a psychotherapist. He worked with difficult clients within the industry. Oh, interesting. We also have Norman Steinberg writing the screenplay. Before this, he did a ton of television, Blazing Saddles, and Yes, Giorgio. After this, Johnny Dangerously, Wise Guys, and Funny About Love. Now, those are our credited writers. Mm -hmm. Our uncredited writer is a man you might have heard of named Mel Brooks. Oh, yes. He's got the beta king. This was originally his movie and his story. He based the story on his time working on Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. However... Norman Steinberg took the script, did four different rewrites, and by the time they got through the writing process, all the characters and events had been completely fictionalized. So Mel, you know, both by industry standards and by his own terms of credit, was like, this is no longer my story. Yeah. He's noted in the trades as an executive producer at the time, but he did not actually receive credit as that, though he acted as executive producer for the film. Okay. So somewhere along the way, he got a cut. Sure. But he he basically went, well, 
I started this story, but now it's not my story at all anymore. So y'all just run with it. Yeah, I mean, provided that was a professional conversation and more about like, let's just be honest about like what's how this has evolved type of conversation. I can appreciate that being like, you know what? I may have started this, but this is not mine anymore. So my name being on it doesn't make sense anymore. I understand that. And, you know, I mean, like, I only want my name on if if it's really mine and it's not. So like, yeah. that's fair. Like, I don't, I don't think there's anything bad about that. But everyone is an avatar of a figure of the time. Like, they barely hide the fact that it's related to your show of shows. Hmm. Benji Stone is based on Mel Brooks. Yeah. Swan is based on Errol Flynn. Yeah, I, yeah, I figured that out. Mob boss Carl Rojek was based on Jimmy Hoffa. Okay. King Kaiser is Sid Caesar, because come on. Yeah. And the silent writer Herb, who whispers into everybody's ears instead of talking out loud, is based on Neil Simon. Okay. Who was a co-writer along with Mel Brooks at that time. Mm. What do we think of the writing of this movie? It's pretty good. I mean, it's fucking great. It's very funny and witty. And finding out that Mel Brooks had a hand in it makes total sense it, it's got that quippiness and then it's got you know the the uh, just a staple of anything that mel brooks touches is a joke about jews <laughs> it's just it's gonna happen i love also that it's not afraid to get a little deep especially with swan's character mm-hmm. just a just a plain slapstick comedy wouldn't deal with that but this movie's willing to go there yeah i i like that they gave some like at first you're just like okay he's just a drunk actor and then you kind of like oh he's sad about his his daughter whoop de doo but then it's also like when he kind of gives a little more context it was like i got cast as this guy and i've never stopped playing him and you realize that like whoever he is on screen is who he's being in real life because he doesn't know what else to do and that's just how he's been set up it's like oh okay so that's what's going on. Yeah, I love the turn when he has complete and utter anxiety about being on live TV. Sure. What a great twist. Just when you think you've kind of pegged this character emotionally, and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, he's fucking terrified because he's a movie star. Well, it was a great turn because we had already gotten his vulnerability mm-hmm. with Benji you know, telling him what, what his real name was. And like, this is this is who I am. And then, you know, he's gone to see his daughter and he can't get out of the car. He's just so ashamed and nervous. So like, like you're like, oh, OK, like that's the emotional depth we've gotten from him. OK, cool. Oh, fuck. It's way deeper. Yeah, well, it, it's manifesting in a lot more ways. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Mr. Swan, you're white. You mean it all goes into the camera lens and then just spills out into people's houses? Yeah. I said nobody had the goodness to explain this to me before. It's nothing to worry about, Mr. Swan. Our audiences are great. Audience? What audience? Audience. You knew there was an audience. What did you think those seats were for? I haven't performed in front of an audience for 28 years. (laughs) Audience? I played a butler. I had one line! I forgot it. But don't worry. They do such a good job of adding those layers while still making this movie propel forward mm-hmm. as a fucking slapstick comedy. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
that takes a lot of work. That, I think, is what really elevates it beyond just the standard funny movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, they really, really went for it with Swan's character. Yes. And it, and it makes the movie. Yeah. I will say the original ending that they wrote was much, much darker. Oh, okay. Apparently, they were going to be at Swan's grave. Hmm. And Stone would fulfill Swan's one final request, pouring a bottle of wine over his grave. Oh, well, yes, that would have been darker, but but only if no time had passed. Like, next year, if it was just like, you know, 20 years later, I still got to fulfill, you know, his last wish for him. Like, that's how much he meant to me. And one final punchline. Yeah, that would have that would have been that would have been fine. But the one they gave us is is more satisfying. It is. And I gotta tell you, 96 minutes. Yeah. I know it's a comedy, but even in the 80s, they tended to ramble sometimes on those. This movie gets in and gets out. I know this is technically a comedy, but it's no less heartfelt than some of the dramas we've watched. And you know, drama, a a well-told dramatic story doesn't necessarily have to be over 90 minutes either. By all rights, this is a very underrated classic. It really is. Like It's on a lot of people's greatest comedy lists, Mm -hmm. but not a lot of people talk about it. And it's very, very good. Oh, yeah. It's it's very well done. Let's talk about our director. We have seen this gentleman before as an actor, not a director. Oh, okay. It's Richard Benjamin. He previously appeared as Walter Matthau's son and agent in The Sunshine Boys. Oh, okay. He, of course, was a film director. This is his directing debut. After this, he directed City Heat, The Money Pit, My Stepmother is an Alien, Mermaids, Made in America, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, and Mrs. Winterbourne. Oh, wow, okay. I'm familiar with a a good chunk of those. Wow, it's funny that he was on Sunshine Boys because there's a very similar tone in there. It's all related to the same style of humor and then the same guys writing from their own experience. Yeah, but also, you know, just that industry of comedy. They couldn't have picked somebody better who had already done a somewhat similar story relating to that era of comedy Mm -hmm. and then be like, hey, so you did that really well. And I, I have to imagine Mel was one of the reasons that he got brought in. Because Mel would have seen that movie being like, that's the guy to do this. Yeah. He wants to be a director. This is a perfect movie for him to cut his teeth on. And uh, by all rights, Mel Brooks willing to take a chance on people. Yeah. The directing's really good. It is good because it's really big when it needs to be really big. It's very subtle and it's, it, it's, it's happy to be quiet. Yeah. Like it doesn't get in the way of itself. What's amazing is that as a director, he can do a broad comedy sequence that requires a lot of moving pieces. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he can give us a visual moment, like watching Swan come back and have to face his fears to, to be in that musketeer sketch. Yeah. And to see that look on Peter O'Toole's face of just like horribly haunted life. Mm-hmm. That... Peter O'Toole is only barely acting, and he just captures it in a way that is not pitiful, but that is just honest. Mm-hmm. To be able to do both of those things is wildly impressive to me. 
Like, I don't know how you have both of those talents in the same movie, but he yeah. has it. <laughs> yeah. The clips of Alan Swan's career are actually from Peter O'Toole's performances in the movies Lord Jim and Catherine the Great. They then shot some new footage to mix those to highlight Swan's adventure movies. The sword fight is actually a near shot-for-shot remake of Errol Flynn's sequence in The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. I thought it looked very familiar, but I I think it's mostly that that particular scene has been reconstructed many times. They did so much detail work in like who they named what Mm -hmm. and what things they referenced. There's a whole lot of detail that's going on here, which is a credit just to the whole production. You know, part of that's that you're kind of telling Mel Brooks' story. I mean, on the DVD cover, it says it's based on Mel Brooks' experiences. Mm -hmm. So, like, that guy was going to tell you if it looked wrong. (laughs) Well, let's talk about these two actors who make this movie so freaking great. And we are going to start... With a man who has not appeared on this show, but who is most definitely an acting legend, Peter O'Toole, playing Alan Swan. Before this, he was in Lawrence of Arabia, Beckett, Lord Jim, What's New Pussycat, The Sandpiper, How to Steal a Million, The Night of the Generals, Casino Royale in 1967, The Lion in Winter, Goodbye Mr. Chips, Murphy's War, Under Milk Wood, The Ruling Class, Man of La Mancha, and Caligula. After this, He played Sherlock Holmes in a number of television movies, Supergirl, The Last Emperor, The Nutcracker Prince from 1990, King Ralph, Bright Young Things, Troy, Lassie, he was Anton Ego in Ratatouille, and he was in Stardust. Oh, yeah. What do we think of Peter O'Toole in this movie? He's great. He he really is. After having watched all of The Star is Born, I'm a little tired of the... uh... Brilliant, but uh, troubled alcoholic, al- alcoholic or addict performer. But my issue with those a lot, the one thing I wanted, I was like, I wanted us to see them be brilliant. I wanted us to see them do the thing that makes them worth all this trouble. And we got it in this film. Yeah. He came through. Yes, he was absurd and he was a pain in the ass. And yes, he's tortured and troubled and he's got some shit he's got to work out. But we got to see him do the thing that makes everyone else go. It's worth it. He's such an amazing actor. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like always has been. At some point we will watch Lawrence of Arabia, which, you know, it's one of his earliest roles in his crowning achievement already. Mm hmm. You know, there's not a whole lot of daylight between his actual life and this movie. Yeah, I I did know that a little bit. He was an alcoholic for a long, long part of his life. I think only in the very last few years was he actually cleaning up. Mm. You know, it, it was something he was very well known for. But he was also very well known for being very professional, very good, and being capable while also dealing with those demons Mm -hmm. so even then he manages to bring the same gleam and charm that he has in everything he's ever done to this Mm -hmm. and the same level of acting capability i think too often you can cast somebody like this in that sort of direct role and they get lost in it you know it's it's too close to home they're just too overwhelmed by it emotionally that they sort of get lost and it just gets washed out and he doesn't he he finds that 
just little bit of daylight between it. I think partially because he knows he's basing it on an Errol Flynn character. Mm-hmm. So he, he can bring a little more swashbuckling to it than what he would normally do. Mm-hmm. And then he's able to tap into the vulnerability from his own experience. But it's a really fine line that he runs and it, and it makes the movie great. Mm-hmm. He was offered the role the day after he was nominated for an Oscar for 1980's The Stuntman, another movie about Hollywood. As soon as Mel Brooks found out about this, he yelled at director Richard Benjamin, well, that was brilliant. Do you have any idea how much money that cost us? <laughs> Peter O'Toole was initially hesitant about taking the role until he discovered that the date of Swan's death was his birthday. In the script, he asked if Benjamin did that to all of the actors who had been offered the role. Benjamin responded that they hadn't offered the role to anyone else. Oh. And Peter O'Toole immediately agreed to take on the movie. Hmm. Interesting. (laughs) I don't think they did it on purpose. I I understand that. And apparently, Peter O'Toole insisted on doing his own stunts for this film. Mm Mm-hmm. Just like our man William Mapather, who we've talked about many a time, mm-hmm. uh, O'Toole said the great thing about swashbucklers like Errol Flynn was that you could tell it was them on screen doing the action. It lent authenticity and believability, and that's especially true in a time when that could be really hard to come by in movies. Yeah. It was hard to like really make it feel super, super real, but you could lose an audience real quick. Oh, sure. And so... He, he said uh, he wanted to do it all. He talked the production into providing a fencing instructor who he worked with two hours a day so that he could get into shape for the final fight sequence. So he really did that stuff. Pretty good. That's, that's cool. Pretty good. Who could have been better? Mm-hmm. Albert Finney. Ooh, interesting. He, of course, was busy with Annie, but they, they were considering waiting on him. Oh, okay. They talked about, they thought... Maybe we just wait for for him to have it. And this movie moved relatively slow through production. One thing that I I didn't know and and plays into why Annie took so long, there was a potential writer strike in 1981. Mm. The negotiations were coming down to the wire. So this movie moved pretty slow. And I think at one point they thought, well, maybe we can just wait and we'll get him. But uh, they decided to go for Peter O'Toole instead. Mm. I... You know, Albert Finney's one of those actors that you're like, well, he can't really do wrong, but there's a level of vulnerability and truth in O'Toole's performance here. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Albert Finney has that same life experience that he brings to it. I just don't know. Well, since they're really going for something like an Errol Flynn type, it needs to be O'Toole. Tall, charming, dashing. Yeah. I love Albert Finney, but he's yeah, not but that. he he's not dashing. <laughs> no, and Peter O'Toole is so angular in every way. Mm-hmm. Even at that age, gorgeous. They put him in that musketeer costume. Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Our other main actor is Mark Lynn Baker as Benji Stone. He gets an introducing credit for this movie. Now, Mark Lynn Baker is mostly a stage actor. Mm-hmm. But he has had a number of roles before this, Manhattan. After this, you would best know him in Perfect Strangers from television. Mm-hmm. And then he was also in Noises Off, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, Adam, and How Do You Know? He is also in the best version of Into the Woods, the 1989 cast with Bernadette Peters. 
cousin Larry Appleton. <laughs> That's where I know him from. It's from Perfect Strangers, one of the shows that my brother and I used to watch all the time as kids. He is so adorable. And within like the first five minutes of him, I told David, I was like, he's proto Chandler. Uh huh. Like you take one look at the way he's acting, even the way he's dressed. It's like, this is Chandler Bing. I love it. <laughs> Do you think there are funny people and not funny people? Yes, definitely. On the funny side, there are the Marx Brothers, except Zeppo. The Rich Brothers, no exceptions. Both Laurel and Hardy and Woody Woodpecker. On the unfunny side, there is anybody who has ever played the accordion professionally. <laughs> he's fully committed. Mm-hmm. He's fully invested. He's not as like quippy as some of yeah. the other people, though he's got his fair share. But just what I think he brings so well is he brings a sense of physical comedy mm-hmm. where Peter O'Toole is playing drunk yeah. and playing loose. Mark now has to do all the physical comedy of being neurotic and on occasion drunk as well. (laughs) And he does it so perfectly. He's got to go toe to toe with one of the best actors in movie history. And he not only does it, but he compliments Swan so well. Mm. Like they're just a perfect pair together. And then he does, he gets these really wonderful moments of like, you're a hero to me. And that means something. Yeah. Like, those lines often come off as the most cheesy things ever. It's like, this man's clearly tortured. Why are you saying that to him? But it's so earnest in this moment that you believe it because Mark Lynn Baker's that good. Mm-hmm. No, man. You're a hero to all these people in this audience. Get the fuck up there and do your job. It's, it's very, very good. And he, impressive shit, impressive shit from him. And that's it for our main cast. I could go into some of the other people, but they're not in the movie enough to like make a huge impact in a main cast role. Sure. However, there are a lot of Arpons. Mm. We have Jessica Harper playing Casey Downing, our main love interest. She was the original lead of Suspiria in the yeah. 70s and appeared in Minority Report. And in the 1990s, she also started writing picture books and composing music for children. Mm. We have Bill Macy playing Cy Benson. He is no relation to William. It's probably why William had to change his credit name, but he is a big character actor who has been in both The Producers and The Jerk. Lainey Kazan, the daughter of Elia. She appeared in Beaches, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. She's a very recognizable woman, and she's so fucking funny in this movie. I love Mm -hmm. it. Adolph Green playing Leo Silver. Adolph Green is not an actor. He wrote On the Town and the story for Singing in the Rain. That's insane. (laughs) They brought him in to be like the head over the show. I love it. George Weiner playing Myron Fine. He played Colonel Sanders in Spaceballs, the main henchman of Dark Helmet. Mm -hmm. Selma Diamond playing Lil. She played bailiff Selma Hacker on Night Court, but she was an actual staff writer for your show of shows. Mm. And so she gets to be the costume designer in this movie. Corinne Borer playing Bonnie. She played Leanne Mars on Veronica Mars. Playing Miss Anne Horn, the lady Swan dances with at the club, the old woman. That's Gloria Stewart from Titanic. Just absurd. (laughs) This was her first film in 36 years. Mm. And this was the beginning of her coming back 
in little small character roles until Titanic happened. Stanley Brock playing Mr. Berkowitz, the neighbor. He was Uncle Harvey in UHF. Hmm. Katie McLean playing Tess, Swan's daughter. She has had extended runs on almost every big soap opera. She had 210 episodes on As the World Turns, 572 on All My Children, 112 on The Young and the Restless, and is on a current run of 36 episodes on Days of Our Lives. <laughs> yeah! Wow. She jumped networks on soap operas. That's wild. That is wild. And finally, Norman Steinberg, a writer, plays Sandy, the director of Comedy Cavalcade. Hmm. Now let's talk about awards. We love this movie. We think it's really good. It was only nominated for one Academy Award. Oh, okay. I think frustrating. I think this could have been nominated for some more. Okay. But it was nominated for Best Actor for Peter O'Toole. I understand that. I could have seen a Best Supporting for Mark Lynn Baker, and I could have seen a Best Original Screenplay. Oh my gosh, yes. Probably not director, I get that. And it's not a big enough movie for picture, but... Sure, but a writing, writing and another acting would have been fair. At least the writing. Oh my gosh. The, ri- the writing being left off here is wild to me. But, you know. Who knows? Who knows? All right, some pieces of trivia. The scene between Lil, the costume designer, and Alan Swan in the bathroom was based on an actual story about John Barrymore having an incident with a wardrobe girl on the set of 1939's Midnight. Mm. John Barrymore, also a renowned drunk. Yep. This film was adapted into a musical, and the performer of Alan Swan was nominated for a 1993 Tony Award. One Tim Curry. Mm. Damn. Tim Curry as Alan Swan? Yes. Yeah. Also, reprising her role from this movie, Lainey Kazan also got nominated for a Tony Award. Wow, okay. However, the musical completely flopped. It ran for only 36 performances after 45 previews. Oh, okay. So, acting might have been fun, but uh, sounds like it wasn't a a good show. For some real, real deep movie references, Alan Swan's name is very suspiciously close to a director, Alan Dwan, who directed swashbuckling movies like 1922's Robin Hood, The Iron Mask, A Modern Musketeer, and 1939's The Three Musketeers. They went deep. They pulled real deep from the Hollywood well. Yeah. It seems like they did. <laughs> Alan Swan's quote of dying is easy, comedy is hard are allegedly the final words of the great Shakespearean actor Edmund Keane. And finally, to tie it all together, the film's first line from Benji Stone states that 1954 was my favorite year. Mark Lynn Baker was born in 1954. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> that's fun. And that will lead us to our ratings for this movie. Mm. For every film, we have a specialized rating system. For this one, I have it ready. We're going to go with Secret Bottles of Booze. Okay. Secret Bottles of Booze. He's got one hidden for, for whenever he needs it for emergencies. If you knew me in college, you knew this was true of me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, it was a game we played. <laughs> um. All right. Ooh. Uh, I'm going to go three and a half. Ooh, okay. I really enjoyed it. I know I didn't give a whole lot of 
like criticisms for it because I did really enjoy it. I just think it's, it's just not a slam dunk. Like I wasn't constantly laughing or like really touched by things. So I like, it's like, it's a, it's a good movie. It's, it's funny. Um, it's just not one that I, I would be like, I'm going to be watching this one again. Like, which is what I definitely need when I watch a comedy. I'm going to go four for similar reasons. Although part of it for me is like, I can't find a fault with this movie. Mm-hmm. Like it's just really well crafted and put together. I think we're, we're, you're absolutely right. It's like, it's not memorable. I'm not going to mm-hmm. remember a whole lot of moments from this movie. I like it a lot. I think it's a wonderful movie that, you know, if it's available somewhere for you to watch it, absolutely sit down, give it a spin. But it's not one that it's like, it's on the must-see list forever. Mm-hmm. It's just really, really well made. So I can't go five stars because it's not perfect, but I'm going to go four. Four. Mm-hmm. That's a healthy dose of booze. Yeah. Fair. So what's up next? Well, we're going to go right back to television. Oh, okay. But we're going to go to the 80s. Ah. To a movie I both feel like I should have seen and also feel like maybe I didn't need to see. But we'll have to find out. Because we're going to watch Tootsie. Mm, okay, yeah. You know, it's going to be real interesting talking about this movie in 2022. I think that's what makes watching it now that much more interesting. We are 40 years removed from this movie being released. Mm-hmm. And it's like, does this hold up? All right. Is this premise going to work anymore? I don't know. I don't know. Well, until next time. Have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook.